Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi, you're listening to Recover Girl. It's a podcast all about addiction and recovery. And increasingly, it's about creativity. Um, if you're new to the show, welcome. You can get this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, all of those places. If you listen and you are not a subscriber, why not subscribe? It helps me and it helps you. You can also review and rate it. And if you want to find out more about this podcast, go to recovergirlpod.com. That's all I've got. Oh, did I say I'm your host, Anna David? I can't even remember, but, um, and it was a second ago. Uh, sorry, my brain's fried. I'm sitting here with a wonderful guest, and um, his name's Dave Smith. Hey, Anna. And so I know Dave. Um, he is a longtime um, teacher of Buddhism, he is an author. I got to know him because um, he was teaching at Against the Stream. And, um, and he's wonderful. And one night when I came to hear you talk, um, he would give Dharma talks. I mean, he still gives Dharma talks, but he gave a Dharma talk and then he leads a meditation and I was going through it and crying. Do you remember this? And I went up to you. I do remember that. Yeah. And I was like, you changed my life. Oh, I always get so nervous when people say that. Wait, and do you remember you, this was great alcoholism. Um, I hope I'm not outing you, um, as, as someone who, who has negative, uh, self-talk, you go, I thought I sucked. Yeah, I've had those nights many times. I do, and I just, I was like, but, but no, but you changed my life. It was so profound, and you almost, you didn't believe me. You're like, no, 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 I sucked tonight. I felt that way. Yeah, it's interesting when you teach all the time and you're in front of the room and you're talking. That sometimes you, some, it's hard work to do sometimes. And when you're teaching all the time, you're not sure if the material you're talking about is landing for people. And a lot of times that will happen is I'll think that I did a, a terrible job and somebody will come up and tell me, no, that was really great. Changed my life. Yeah. And then there'll be times where I'll give a talk and I'll think to myself, that was so amazing. And then I'll listen to it later and be like, that actually wasn't good at all. That was really bad. Do you listen to them always? You know, I don't always listen to them. I don't like listening to myself talk. But years ago when I started teaching... Um, just in a public speaking way, it's actually really quite good to listen to yourself talk because you can make adjustments and you can make changes that are needed. So as much as I don't like it, it feels a little weird to listen to myself give a Dharma talk. I don't listen to all my talks, but I listen to quite a few of them, especially if I'm giving a new talk, a new material, mm -hmm. because I want to see how I did and I want to see what I need to change next time. So I've taken that on, that burden on of listening to my talks for the purpose of actually giving them uh, giving better ones next yeah. time. Yeah, I think that's great. I um, I sort of vacillate between doing that and and not. Um, I used to listen to all of them with the thinking. My my um, rationalization was I need to make sure that the intro and the outro were put on perfectly. But I think I wanted to hear them. 
Um, and my best story about it is one time I was pulled over at a sobriety checkpoint and I said, not only am I not drunk, I'm an actual sober person and I'm listening to my own podcast about recovery and the cop looks at me and he goes, that's a little much. That is a little much. Um, <laughs> but, awesome though. but now I don't, I don't listen anymore because I just get tired of hearing my voice, you know? Yeah. I listen less and less now because right. I've kind of improved on all of the yeah. stuff I used to do. Like I used to talk too fast or I would uh, say um too much or yeah. these kind of public speaking things. I've kind of fixed a lot of that. But if I do give a talk on material that's new for me, I will oftentimes listen to that particular talk so I can make improvements for the next time. When you give a Dharma talk, so those aren't always new? When you, the ones I would go to, were they, they always felt very fresh. Are they recycled talks? Well, kind of. I mean, to some degree, I'm one of those people who memorizes really quite well. Yeah. And I used to be in, in bands and I, and I know song lyrics and I'm kind of a jukebox. I can get up and play probably a hundred songs. So I'm good at memorizing. So I've memorized much of the Buddhist teachings and I've memorized a lot of the material that I like and I want to regurgitate. So, you know, you might see that I give two talks on, say, right view. Mm -hmm. And there might be a lot of similarities, but there will also be a lot of differences. So right. what I'll usually do in my mind, if I'm not totally prepared, is I'll have sort of five bullet points. Yeah. This is where I want to start. This is where I want to go. This is some of the things I want to cover, and this is where I want to end. So I might, if I had notes, I might only have five bullet points written on a page. So I do try to map them out a little bit, and some things will be repetitive, and some things will be fresh, and some things will be totally spontaneous. See, that's perfect, because if it was a fully memorized talk, it's not going to have that life-changing, organic thing. And it's, it's sort of um, in 12-step rooms, you know, quote-unquote circuit speakers sometimes – you know, oftentimes they're my least favorite because it's so canned. They're so canned and it's so re so uh, well rehearsed that it's obvious and it it loses its authenticity, which is a bummer because that's one of the things about 12-step sharing and story that I think is what makes people feel so connected is when they have the experience of somebody giving an authentic message that feels not rehearsed and feels real and feels spontaneous. So Yeah. And I think that people in recovery have really good bullshit detectors anyway. Yeah. I remember this one that I went to. It was at a convention. And the speaker did a cry, a, you know, a mid-share cry. And then it, like, it, it was a bit, it turned out, and he really wasn't crying. And I was, you know, he, and then he revealed two minutes later that it was a fake cry. And I was just like, now we can't trust a word you said. You That's just right. showed us you're an actor. That's right. Um, so, okay, so speaking of 12, so how long have you been sober? 14 years, just a few days ago. Awesome. Oh, that's ago. right. The day you were supposed to come that's and right. do this. That's right. Um, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, what got you sober? Suffering, suffering, and more suffering. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it was, you know, I have a, uh, I'll say some unpopular things about it for the most part is that I would say 80% of my drinking and using was fabulous. I had a wonderful time. I got away with murder. It worked and worked for me for a long, long periods of time. And I actually don't regret a lot of the stuff that happened in my active using. Now, it got really, really bad towards the end. Right. And so I would say probably the last two years, maybe three years, was really, really, really bad. And I'm very fortunate. I'm one of those people. I have one white chip. 
I only tried one time. I knew, you know, that I needed to stop drinking and using drugs. I knew that when it was time to do that, you went to this place called AA. Right. And, you know, and I, I sort of knew that that was coming. And I had been in my teen years. So it wasn't that hard for me. So I just sort of went in and, you know, have remained sober 14 years since my first meeting. I don't think the statistic, the percentage is, is that off for most people. I think 80-20. I mean, I, I've never heard someone say that, and mm. I like it. But yeah, I mean, the reason we the 20% got so bad is that it worked so well for so long. That's right. So, and, so why had you gone as a teenager then? Well, you know, I was... Um, I had a lot of trauma as a teenager, and I, I, I was drinking fairly regularly at the age of 10 and 11. So How I would you even get you were stealing it from your parents? Well, my father had a refrigerator in the basement that had, you know, 70 Budweiser's in it. So I could take eight or nine of them, and right. they would never notice. I grew up in that, you know, New England. My dad was a Vietnam vet, construction, beer drinking. I thought everybody drank 15 beers every day. Right. So I grew up around that, so there was nothing unnormal about that and so because of that there was a teacher in my school who was an, an Al-Anon woman and who knew a lot about AA and she used to take kids to Alateen. Wow. I don't know if you remember Alateen. Yeah. Children. So I used to go to Alateen and think it was strange because my family wasn't really that uh, dysfunctional. My father drank all the time but he didn't hit us. He wasn't abusive. It was just sort of like yeah my dad gets drunk a lot. What's the problem? Yeah. But then we would once in a while go instead of going to Alateen we would actually go to AA meetings. And so then a couple of years later in high school, I threw up at a school dance and got in with hammered out of my face. And like, so they, they had me go. I sort of got sentenced, if you yeah. will, as a teenager to AA. And I go to AA and not hear the end of the story. People would tell these awesome stories about drinking and doing drugs. And I'd right. be like, yeah, what's the problem? This I totally want to do all those things. Right, right, right. And then you would just tune out the end? I would just tune out the end, apparently. Wow. Now, question. Um, first of all, what an amazing teacher that she would do that. Don't yeah, you think? that was great. Yes. In fact, I still have the first big book she gave me probably 25, maybe 30 years ago now at my parents' house that has a little kind of, I hope this someday will be helpful, transcription in it, which is kind of... Were you annoyed at the time? Not really, no, yeah. actually. I always thought AA was cool. I just yeah. just didn't want to, I just, you know, didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't want to get in the way of my drinking. <laughs> right, right. So it didn't occur to you back then that you had a problem? No, no, definitely not. And so, so then what was your, can we talk about your trauma? Well, trauma for me was mostly, um, so if you look at it, I have what's called episodic. Um, so I have episodes of traumatic loss. So I had a sister who was killed in a car accident when I was 11 years old, mm -hmm. who was like my best friend and I looked up to her. And so she was tragically killed in a car accident. And when I was 19, m me and my girlfriend at the time got hit by a drunk driver and she was killed. And I was oh, there to yeah. witness that whole accident, which was really, really, really traumatic for me because it was like, we got hit by a car and I had to discover the dead body and go to the police station and get the ambulance and ID the driver of the car. And then, um, so that was probably the one that had the biggest charge. Uh, I actually think getting sober is traumatic, so I count that as one of mine, because uh, I had to quit. I quit my band. I was in a very successful band and touring and living in Amsterdam at the time, so I had to give up my whole rock and roll career to get sober. And then um, five years into sobriety, I got married, and my wife, uh, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and she relapsed and started drinking and actually ended up getting murdered about five years after that. Oh, my God. Um, which was actually big news in Nashville. It was like on the paper in the news. So for most of my trauma has been around catastrophic death and loss. What about your motorcycle accident? Do you count that? 
You know, I, I probably should, but I don't feel like I picked up any new traumatic stress symptoms as a result of that accident. It was more of a bodily trauma, I think. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was in the trauma unit for sure. They yeah. had to screw my pelvis back together. But I don't feel um, I don't feel any symptomatic uh, results of having been in that accident, although it was certainly traumatic. Was it but about a year ago? No, it was uh, October 15th, so nine months. You know, want to know something bizarre. Josh was supposed to come and record a podcast with me, texted me, and was like, Dave was just in a horrible accident oh and had to cancel. Yeah. Um, and, and you were in the hospital for... I was in the hospital for about probably six weeks. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And did they put you on pain pills? I was heavily sedated in the hospital. I mean, I had an open book fracture on my pelvis, so I was on like insane amounts of Dilaudid. And, you know, I don't remember, to be honest with you, I don't really remember much of being in the hospital. The which, entire six weeks? Yeah, most of it I don't remember, which I'm happy about. Mm -hmm. And when I left the hospital, I didn't leave on any pain medication, so I didn't take any pain medication at all post-discharge uh, mm -hmm. from the hospital. And I haven't had really a whole lot of pain. I certainly don't have any chronic pain as a result of the motorcycle accident. So, you know, I didn't have um, any sort of fear or any experience of detox or withdrawal that seemed to be problematic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Ed, it's interesting how much car accidents, accidents have featured so prominently in your life. It's true. I, I, that's just that's just bizarre. Yeah, I try not to make up stories about that kind I of know, stuff because I know. it's easy to do. But it, it has been thematic, you know. Yeah. It's been a reoccurring, um, you know, catastrophic event. But then again, if we look at the statistic, car accidents, motorcycle accidents are very common. So it wasn't like you know that strange of a scenario. But it has been a, definitely a reoccurring theme of like these traumatic events where somebody dies. Yeah. And of course, the most recent one, the person who almost died was me. Yeah. So I, this, that's the first time I was actually um, in that uh, predicament. Usually it's somebody else close to me that I really care about, you know, is alive one day and they're gone the next day. And so that kind of right. traumatic loss is, is, you know, really not something that people manage well. Now, how, how does your trauma manifest itself today? Well, I mostly feel pretty resolved. I, I've done lots and lots of trauma therapy, um, everything from EMDR to Gestalt part work. So a lot of experiential work that I did when I was in Nashville, Tennessee with Dr. Lee Norton. And now I do work with this person in Los Angeles, which is more of a Gestalt type of therapy. So I don't, it, 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 I do experience traumatic stress symptoms for sure. And for me, it tends to be in the arena of hypervigilance, of really, really, really tuning in and focusing on those things. Um, a lot of, uh, unrealistic fear about things and for me a, a sense of urgency where I might be like hatching a type of escape plan of like I need to get the fuck out of here this place isn't safe I gotta go um, but the the episodes are very short now because I have so much awareness of them that if I'm in sort of a PTS state I usually can say oh I'm in a PTS state I need to completely ignore all the information I'm getting from my mind and I have resources that I can use to get through the episode with usually without having to do or say anything that is destructive. Breathing is one of the tools? Breathing I do, but yeah, breathing, I mean, body-based practices, of course. Um, and for me, I'll, I'll, the big one, of course, is to recognize that my perception and any type of heightened traumatic st 
state, what happens is your perception becomes extremely altered. So all the information that you're getting from your mind, all of the data you're getting in that present time experience is usually very, very faulty. So you have to become aware of that and you have to recognize that there's certain stories and certain themes that information your mind is telling you, I'm not safe, this isn't okay, they're out to get me, it's, you know, whatever the, the story is for you. So that way when my thinking takes on that kind of proliferation, I take that as a, a warning sign of like, okay, like I need to actually not trust any of the data I'm getting right now until this episode is over. How long can the episode last? Anywhere from, you know, two hours to two weeks for me. I don't have the long ones anymore. Uh, One of our good friends, I'm sure you knew Curtis Washington. I didn't, but I... Oh, you didn't? No, no. Anyway, he's a good friend of ours who worked with us, um, and he was part of Against the Stream, was killed in a tragic motorcycle accident. And I... uh, I experienced latent symptoms, so he was killed in a car accident. I didn't start to experience symptoms till about 10 days or two weeks later, and I experienced symptoms for fairly heightened symptoms that were pretty hard to, to, to manage for about 10 days to two weeks. The heightened symptoms being your thoughts, I'm not okay? I'm not okay. It's not okay. The world is unsafe. People are not trustworthy. I need to get out of here. Uh, kind of a height, hyper-arousal um, very very distressed state knowing that i'm distressed while being distressed but not being able to do anything about it except for basically tolerate it yeah uh, because and not act on it yeah and that and that's the key of course to having addiction is that is to not do anything not engage in any destructive behavior to medicate the distressed state yeah and also it's like so you're in a relationship so let's say you're going through this for two weeks what are you saying to your girlfriend? Like, are yeah. you are you like, hey, look, honey, I'm in it right now. That's right. Don't trust anything I say. That's right. Well, fortunate. Well, at the time, fortunately or unfortunately, I was single and yeah. I wasn't in a relationship. So, but when which, it happens now, when it happens now, it hasn't happened since too much for me. But usually, what it is, it's, it's yeah, hey, just so you know, I'm kind of cuckoo right now, you know, and, and I might need additional support, or I, you know, so it's just kind of being honest about it when it happens. But also you have to go and be this quote unquote spiritual guy giving Dharma talks. What happens if you're in one of those states? You know, it's hard. It can be hard. You can be like an attitude of, I don't really want to do this right now. Yeah. Um, But one thing that I've been able to do histrionically around trauma is I've actually, one of the byproducts of being a meditator is I've, I learned how to do this thing that sometimes is called spiritual bypassing where I've actually learned to some degree how to repress. Yeah emotional states when they're present so I can actually get through the day, yep. which is actually really, really useful and also very, very problematic. If it, if you can be, put it on hold and go, okay, I'm going to take care of this later. Yeah. It, so I've learned how to do that. So yeah. when I go into a situation where I might have a heightened state of traumatic stress, I can kind of shut it down in the short term to kind of get through the Dharma talk or get through the experience. And sometimes I'll actually incorporate it into the talk if it feels appropriate. And sometimes I'll actually intentionally repress it for a period of time and just pull off my cognitive function of being like, okay, I know what I'm going to talk about. I know this material. I can kind of speak from more from my head than from my heart. So if I feel I'm in a highly emotional state, I probably won't teach something that is going to trigger that. I might yeah. teach something that's a little bit more of a wisdom practice or mm. more educational or more didactic. So, you know, to some degree, I do what I have to do to take care of myself in that experience so I don't get blown out. And 
What's interesting to me about this is the state that you describe is certainly not very different from what is considered quote unquote alcoholism or alcoholic thinking. I mean, that is true. You know, that's something I, I relate to it. So I have some PTSD, you know, but I, but I, yeah, but I relate to it in terms of alcoholic thinking. Just any time that I am sad and there's nothing to be sad about, I go to my thinking and I go, you know, what, what are these thoughts that are triggering it? And, and then I just have to go, well, okay, that's not, that's not real. And it's a constant process of walking it back. That's you right. have the thought, you walk it back. Great, great work, but the thought just come, came back. That's right. Well, I think what we, what we would call mental obsession yeah. is that we oftentimes get in these states or these experiences where we're, are, are, we're mentally obsessed with basically either controlling something or fixing something or figuring something out or even maybe trying to solve a problem that's actually not happening right now, yeah. Yeah. which is really, really yeah. stressful. Yeah. So I think a lot of times it's just you know from an awareness-based practice which is basically where I come from nowadays, is you have to recognize when that's happening. Yeah. To even begin to do anything about it. Yeah. And it's, and you know, I think you said it really well when it's like, just because you know it's happening doesn't make it go away. That's right. That's the rub. Sometimes it makes it worse. Yeah. Because then you can blame yourself, you mean, almost? You can blame yourself or you can... Uh, there's a variety of things that can happen, but I think what, one of the things that happens is that we think that just because I'm aware of it, that means it should go away. Right. Uh, and so that way we kind of either, we either choose to believe it as being this person who has this problem. I'm this person who has this problem. I always have this problem. Why do I have this problem? What do I do about this problem? Or we practice with it and say, okay, this is, this is a very familiar pattern or habit, right. psychological habit that gets me. Right. Am I going to work with this or am I going to kind of collapse into it? Right. Right. I think, um, you know, if one believes that, you know, as I do sort of, uh, I'm not sort of, I do believe that alcoholism is less about how much we drink and do drugs and all of that stuff and more about that feeling of I can't handle how I feel right now. I'll do anything I possibly can to change it. Sure. You know, and that's how, you know, people don't get why some people don't get why you have to keep treating alcoholism even when the obsession to drink and use has gone away. And it's That's like, right. well, cause that thinking is still there. That's right. Yeah. Any, any type of experience that we get into and, and usually the ones that are most distressing are of an emotional variety. Sure. Which is why I love the emotional sobriety stuff that came much, much later. It's that, you know, like if we don't have the capacity to manage difficult emotions, we'll do something to medicate those difficult emotions. Right. And right. there's a lot of ways you can do that. It could be, you know, Uber Eats and Netflix, or right. it could be hit the crack pipe. Right. So th- there's a wide range of ways in which we medicate those experiences. And ultimately, if we can manage the experience, we don't have to reach for the medication. And for me, that's what recovery is all about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you got me distracted with Uber Eats and, and <laughs> Netflix. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, it's mm. like the, the, yeah, the process so that one doesn't sort of quote act alcoholically in sobriety. Yeah. Is learning to tolerate the emotions. So you don't get to a place of, I can't tolerate how I feel. I'll do anything I can to escape it. Exactly. You eradicate the you eradicate the cause instead of reducing or alleviating the symptom, right. which is how Western medicine and how a lot of these things work, is that that's why I like Buddhism so much. Is that Buddhism isn't about alleviating or medicating or reducing symptoms. It's about actually eradicating the cause of yeah. it in the first place. Yeah. Which, you know, I think is a very encouraging idea. Um, oh, wait, that I remembered and then I forgot again. 
Um, oh my God, I can't believe. Oh, okay. So, because I had, I had, a, I was like, oh, I got to ask him that. And then something else popped in. Um, so, how did you uh, start studying Buddhism? You know, again, it was, it was born out of traumatic stress. It was born out of, it sort of basically like as that my girlfriend got killed in that car accident when I was 19. I was very fortunate that one of the kids I grew up with parents were friends with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and a lot of these IMS sort of Dharma teachers, the first wave of the mindfulness generation. What's IMS? Insight Meditation Society, okay. which is a Buddhist retreat center in Massachusetts. It's okay. Spirit Rock, IMS. They yeah. Kind of the first places where people went and did these long-term mindfulness retreats. So I met a Buddhist teacher at 19 and sat down with him, and he basically explained to me the Buddhist perspective or paradigm, although I didn't know that's what he was doing, where he just normalized suffering. Mm. And I told him about the loss and the hardship and the, and, and the heartbreak and the death and, and having to see all of that. And he you know, basically put it in the framework of like, yeah, that's how it is here. This is how life is for everybody. Right. And that you actually are seeing it clearly now and your heart kind of got ripped open to the reality of experience and there's actually this, this you have some agency over that and so that buddhism acknowledges suffering as being uh, part of life and it also acknowledges that there's a way in which we can put an end to all of the unnecessary suffering that we engage in right and so that's a, usually a pretty attractive idea to most people now this idea that it, you got to be awakened to what reality is what about those people who never get that awakening those lucky bastards yeah i know it's one of those things is it, is it a blessing or a curse Sounds but like i think everybody day. that you talk to and i talk to people and i try to remove my buddhist lexicon and talk to the humanity of people because i think that that's the language that people speak is trying to let people know that people pretty much can identify that they suffer in ways that seem to be fairly unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I think most people can diagnose themselves pretty quickly. You're probably doing it right now. Oh, <laughs> I, I didn't need to do it right now. I do it all day long. Right. Yeah. So if we start to understand that we do suffer in ways that appear to be unnecessary, yeah. we could also understand that there's things that we could do to eradicate that whole yeah. process. Now, of course, we might alleviate the symptoms or reduce that in the short term, but the idea that we could stop suffering in unnecessary ways is usually what inspires people to begin to practice something like meditation. Right. Because that's not that, that's not a very difficult idea to kind of get behind. Yeah. Yeah. Is, um, I mean, yeah, but still I wonder about those people who don't, you know, kind of more shallow people who don't seem to ever experience, who don't, you know, the, the, who don't buy the self-help books, who don't seek meditation, right. um, and who don't seem to suffer with alcoholism and right. mental illness. Well, there are, you know, there are certainly well-adjusted people who seem to do just fine about life. And yeah. I'm just not one of those people. And I'm not actually that interested in those people for the most part. You know, what do we call them, normies around here? Is that what you guys call them out I here? guess that's what we call them. Yeah, it's so yeah. boring. I um, give anything to be one of them. But anyway, so in terms of, so so you first were exposed to Buddhism at 19. Did you start practicing Buddhism then? Yeah, I mean, from 19 to 28, I both played in bands, did copious amounts of drugs and alcohol and a lot of the behaviors that come with that and was sitting meditation retreats. I would go sit 10-day retreats, five-day retreats. I would sit daily at times. I would do day-longs. I considered myself somebody who did practice Dharma 
but I also drank. So I was like sort of a bar room, bull, uh, a, a bar stool Buddhist, I used to say. Right, right. And um, so I did both for a long period of time and was very conflicted by that. But because alcohol worked so well for me and I enjoyed the lifestyle so much, I wasn't willing to give that up. Right. So I kind of did this, you know, double life thing, right, that right. we talk about so much of like being this person who was influenced by Buddhism and had a, a pretty big reverence for Dharma practice as seeing it as being a really true, authentic way to live. But because I was having so much fun and so much success, success engaging in drugs, alcohol and rock and roll until the suffering of that became so great, I just wasn't able to really give that up. What was your band? It's a band called Jaya the Cat. Okay. Terrible band name. The band is still around. They're still in Amsterdam. They still put out records. From what I can tell, they're all they're still doing what they've ever been doing. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, we didn't do well in the states. We were pretty successful in Europe. We were kind of a ska punk reggae party band, kind of sublime meets rancid. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what'd you play? I played guitar, lead guitar, and I sang maybe thirty percent of the songs and wrote some of the songs. And um, we're just a big, big party band and uh, with a lot of fun for a long period of time until it wasn't. And did you think that you could possibly still be in a band once you were sober? I've been in several bands since I've, that I've been sober. And actually, for me, probably one of the biggest disappointments that I continue to struggle with day to day is, especially now being 42 years old and the status of the music world, is that I am pretty much have, you know, come to the realization that I'm never going to have a successful music career. And that actually bothers me. You know, I really, I love music, I love performing, I love writing, um, but I've kind of had to let, hang that one out to dry. And I, I do still carry with myself a pretty big degree of disappointment about not having been able to make that work sober. Mm -hmm. And I've recorded a bunch of records and I've been in some fairly successful bands. I spent seven years in Nashville where I was playing music and teaching Buddhism, but it just, at one point I just realized this just isn't gonna happen. You never do know. You never know. I mean, if I, I mean, I'm open, but I'm also, you know, aware that it's probably unlikely. You know, if J.K. Rowling had said that on her, you know, 13th rejection or 130th rejection of Harry Potter, yeah. you would not have Harry Potter. And I also am not putting much effort into it, too. So right. that's part of it. So I've kind of resigned to music is something that I love. I listen to it all the time. I play it when I feel like it, but I'm not trying to. There's a lot of suffering in that striving of trying to make that work. Well, yeah, and your success there led you to, you know, near death. Right. So there are some things that are more important than maybe having that kind of dream come true. That's right, and that's sort of where I've landed now. It's like, you know, it's, it, so it would be inauthentic of me to say, oh, I don't care about that, I'm over it. That yeah. would not be true. It's like, yeah. I am a little bit disappointed, but I also, you know, I'm okay with that. Right. Now, in terms of other creative uh, ventures, let's talk about your book. Yeah. Well, I wrote this uh, book called Ethical Mindfulness maybe like three years ago now. And um, it's an ebook. You can get it, you know, on Amazon and any but of those places. But hold on. I saw a printed out copy. That's what well, I'm telling you. Well, the publisher you. did print some copies for promotional reasons. So okay. you might have seen yeah. those around at addiction treatment conferences. So yeah. there are. And I think I have, you know, I think I have 10 or 15 of them at my house. So they yeah. did print some up for that. But it was, it was an ebook format. And 
the reason I wrote that book was because of the fact that we have these kind of emerging problems of there's Buddhist mindfulness and mindfulness comes from the Buddhist tradition, but also we see things that mindfulness has become very popular in the secular world. Yes. So there's mindfulness-based stress reduction. We see it all over in addiction treatment and mental health. And on the cover of Newsweek magazine, it's become very uh, secular part of modern mental health. Yeah. So I thought what I wanted to do was to try to find a middle way between those two mm -hmm. of saying, how can we honor the Buddhist tradition and practice mindfulness in a secular way? And my big play on that was sort of a trying to merge secular emotional intelligence, therapeutic modalities with in Buddhism, what we call heart practice meditation or Brahma Viharas or what I really like to just call the sort of beautiful spiritual emotions that we have access to. So lo kindness, loving kindness, mm -hmm. compassion, a gratitude, forgiveness, mm -hmm. and equanimity of trying to incorporate into meditation practice ethical, what I use the word ethical, which I'm, you know, with sort of the word I landed on as being a word that people are familiar with, but in the Buddhist context, ethical just meaning non-harming. Mm -hmm. So how do we, if we want to practice mindfulness and we want to have happy lives, the argument is that we actually can't cause harm. Mm -hmm. So we have to live in a way where we're not causing suffering to ourselves or to others mm -hmm. and trying to include that into mindfulness, secular practices. And of course, working in the addiction treatment field so much that I've done, I've noticed that people who suffer from addiction tend to need some emotional support mm -hmm. in that a lot of times basic mindfulness practices are not very effective for people with addiction, especially in the early stages because of the shame and the guilt and the self-hatred is so high that they really need to begin to practice uh, kindness for themselves mm. and compassion for their suffering, probably right at the right at the beginning mm -hmm. and so that was what i noticed in the work that i did working in the deep south and prisons and youth detention centers was that mindfulness wasn't effective unless it was accompanied by uh, attitudes of non-harming mm -hmm. and so i the book came out of that perspective and that work that i did and um what was your process for writing it it was um very interesting i'm actually really looking forward to writing another book because i think i learned a lot about writing as a result of that. So basically what I did is because I don't have a college degree, I'm not a, you know, a colloquial learned person. I don't have any degrees and I'm kind of, you know, basically like a, a punk rock kid from Boston who barely graduated high school. I wrote above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to come across as appearing very smart. Mm -hmm. So the first manuscript I sent to the publisher, they're like, dude, you've got, this is way too dense. Academic, yeah. Way too academic, way too dense. Like, so I had to kind of, I basically had to, they basically said, cut it in half Take out some of this needing to be smart shit and just deliver it as if your mom was reading it. Mm. So I did that and did a fairly good job. But now I feel like having been through that process one time, I feel like I can write in a way that wouldn't be any different than how I'm talking to you right now, which I think is what good writing is all about. So I'm, I'm looking forward to writing another book. Um, and I sent out some proposals on it. So I've been kind of in some negotiations about what that might look like. What's fascinating is you just gave my writing lecture, which How is, well, which is basically, this is what I teach is that school, bless its heart, taught us uh, some some great things English classes I think taught us some great things about analysis and literature what it did not teach us is how to write because my best writers so I have this coaching program for writers blah 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 um, the the best writers are the ones who write the way they sound my favorite compliment people give me when they read one of my books is felt like hanging out with you that's right and that's how I feel I mean that's how I like to read totally you know do you have favorite authors 
I do have some favorite authors, although I mostly read these like really dry academic Buddhist books, unfortunately. Right. But, you know, I mean, I love, I grew up reading like Charles Bukowski. Right. Which definitely. Yeah. Not academic. He, yeah. You know, he, I like, I have like a lot of the existential prose. I like Albert Camus. I like mm-hmm. his, um, his novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more, because of music, I'm more interested in like song lyrics. I, I don't really like poetry, which is interesting, but I like songs. I like lyrical uh, type of writing. I think that writing a song is a really, really interesting craft. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as authors go, I'm not I'm not a big avid reader and most of the stuff I read in the last really decade has been Buddhist literature, Buddhist literature and Buddhist psychology and Buddhist teachings which is not fun to read at all it's just like you, you know, need to you just kind of need part of the job exactly it's like reading a VCR manual like nobody wants to read that shit you know well it's interesting because I tried like I have Buddha's brain sitting right there yeah which you know I heard Mary talk about it and she just made it so accessible have you read Buddha's brain I have not um, and I was just like, I'm going to read this. Oh my God. Three pages in. I was so bored. That's right. Yeah. I don't read. I never really was a person who read for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm me reading is more about learning and trying to absorb material. So I can go at sort of that dry material a little bit better than other people yeah. because I'm not actually trying to be entertained. Right, right. I'm just trying to understand the concepts and ideas that are being expressed. Yeah. And like you said, you have a really good memory. I do have so, a really good memory. Uh, yeah. I, mine is so different. I read purely for entertainment. And so yeah. if I'm not entertained at every second, I don't finish the book. Exactly. Um, yeah. But in terms of your process with writing, so did you write three pages a day? How long is the book it's it was 170 pages then it was cut in half to like whatever half of that is 80 or 90 and then i think it's 70 now Mm -hmm. i think it's 70 so it's like well it was one of those things where every word needed to be relevant right so actually i'm pretty happy with the project because it was edited so much that if if any sentence didn't need to be there it had to come out right right so it's there's a lot of material packed into 70 pages but you know people who are interested in kind of an introduction to mindfulness um who are interested in buddhism and also people who are interested in buddhism it kind of speaks to that middle of the road person so i think um it's a good kind of mindfulness 101 book Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that people can kind of digest in 70 pages and at least get them it's loaded with a lot of useful information. In terms of, um, you know, having to have every word count, there's this famous quote, William Carlos Williams, maybe? I can't remember. Where the It's a writer who said, I was going to write you a short note, but I didn't have time, so I wrote you this long letter instead. Because right. it actually takes so much longer to, that's right. to edit and that's condense right. and make every word count. And that's how I, you know, coming from a songwriting background, you know, you have to make the words fit with a cadence and rhythm. And so rhyme, it's like you yeah. really have to, it's like more like writing a crossword puzzle. Right. You know, rather than just like writing. So one thing that was fun for me about writing was I didn't, when I started writing prose, I was able to just write. Yeah. I didn't have to make it fit into into meter, into diction, into rhyming. So it was a little bit, I kind of felt like I was off the leash a little bit. It's interesting because I used to try to write screenplays and they always, and TV scripts, and okay. they always felt so much like a math problem to me. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and so the freedom of just being able, I couldn't believe it when I wrote my first novel. I was just like, wait, I just get to do this and all I have to do is follow a three act structure and you kind of don't even have to do that. Yeah. It was so liberating. So what is your next book going to be about? 
Well, you know, there's, it's hard to get a book deal nowadays. It so sure is. One of the things that's been frustrating for me is a couple publishers have come to me, mm-hmm. approached me about writing a book. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And yeah. then they're like, well, send us a proposal. And, right. and, then, and then they're like, well, we're not sure. I'm like, well, you actually came to me. Right, right. So I feel like nowadays what they want is they actually want you to write the whole fucking book and then decide whether they want it. And I just don't have the time or the energy to write a whole book in, 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 as a maybe. But I do want to write this two books I want to write. One is I'm working with this woman, Eve Ekman, who's an emotional researcher. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about writing a book called Evolution or Revolution, mm-hmm. which would be emotional uh, emotional intelligence meets Buddhist psychology, which is a workshop we've done a bunch of times. So we're trying to work that out, which is hard because it's collaborative. But I actually want to write an autobiography called The Wound That Seeks the Arrow. Oh, well, that was the lecture that you gave that changed my life. Okay, that's right. That's what I, and I thought that talk totally sucked. And it's on the podcast now. I got to listen to it to see if it's true. It was a a teaching I heard from Ajahn Sachito, and I think that what happens, and I love this idea of a wound that seeks an arrow. Yeah. Because the first thing we think is, well, why would a wound seek an arrow? Right. But how are the ways, and, and my life has definitely been plagued by the theme of me, some part of my woundedness, which I have not totally resolved and I don't think anybody really has but how is my woundedness and my inner struggle how do I seek external situations and relationships and situations that I'm constantly unconsciously rewounding myself right right one thing that I did want to say about what you said about what publishers what they what they want today they still want book proposals but they want full book proposals they want you know, 25 to 50 pages of this is my overview, this is my sample I've chapter. I've done those. You have. I have, and I've still gotten, we want to see more, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not giving you more. And I'm, like, and I'm busy, and like for me, one of the things that that hasn't motivated me is I don't have, I don't get the ego stroke of right. like having written a book. Like for me, having done the ebook, one thing I recognize is writing a book is hard work. Yeah. And like, you know, so I don't feel that sense of an urgency of I need to write a book and I need to get a book out there. So I don't, I feel a little maybe lazy about it. So I kind of feel like until somebody really, really wants to do it. And I have a couple publishing houses that are talking about it. And of course, autobiographies and memoirs are the hardest things to get published nowadays, which is kind of on a therapeutic level for me. Uh, it, it's the book I'm most interested in writing right now. My, my experience, because I, I talk to publishers and agents like all day long. I'm doing two new books right now. They're not the hardest. I think they're the easiest. The hardest thing to sell oh, right well, now are novels. Maybe you and I should talk after this podcast. But yeah, no, I mean, and in my coaching program, I walk 10 writers through. This is how you write a proposal. This is how you sell it. This is, um, and and then one of the, the way that it works is one of the 10 gets a meeting with my agent and a publisher. Oh, cool. So yeah, I mean, what what I my you know i think that my the cynical me the biggest problem right now is that that they just care so much about people's platform and profile and how many you know so, you know instagram followers do you have and all of that right and you know which the, i actually have that mapped out a little bit better than most people yeah yeah well, how many you got well I don't, I don't know how many i have but i do have you know i teach a lot yep people know me do you have a list that i so, have a list okay you know i have a you know i have a lot of the stuff that you're supposed to have and I, I do get out in front of the in, in front of the room a lot. I'm on different various podcasts. I do speak at addiction treatment conferences. There are people who are interested yeah. in the work that I'm doing. So I do have, 
you know, I think, you know, I, I jokingly would say that even if my book sucks, I'll probably still sell five or 10,000 copies, you know, yeah, just I, because of various streams of people who are interested in things like mindfulness and Buddhism and addiction. Um, okay, so here's what I have to say to you, even though you didn't ask for my opinion. Nice. You were so close to, the, if they're saying, yeah, they came to you, they said, yeah, we like it, give us more. They're not asking you to write the book. They're asking you to give them a little bit more. Yeah, it's probably true. But you know me, I'm a... Yeah, I just haven't been able to follow through and I've been so busy and so kind of ambivalent about the whole thing that I'm once I think I get moved and settled, I yeah. think I'll probably hit it a little bit harder and give it another yeah. kind of blast. But then again, I also, um, you know, I don't know. I don't, again, I don't feel a strong desire or a sense of urgency of it just being something that I need to do. And maybe it's something that happens in two years from now. I don't feel like I need to get it out there right away. So maybe that's part of part of the reason why it hasn't happened yet is you know yeah. my own lack of kind of uh, interest in the whole thing right right i would argue that you are po potentially more interested in it than you're letting your conscious mind know that the fact that you've done it 90 percent of the work yeah, but who knows true. who knows um well look we got to get close to wrapping up i do also want to say that you now have a podcast I do have a podcast. I have a podcast and a website. My website is Rebel Saint Dharma, mm -hmm. which is a pretty useful website. You can, um, my teaching schedules on my website. Um, I have some talks on my website. I have some Buddhist handouts and academic stuff and suggested reading lists. Um, and so there's some good, useful information on there. And also people who want to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, one of the things I do is I do mentor students okay. um, through FaceTime or Skype. Um, and there's information about that. People who want to really develop and establish a regular sitting practice who haven't been able to do that can, can d contact me through there. And, of course, the podcast is also called Rebel Saint Dharma, mm -hmm. which is on iTunes now. So you can just do an iTunes search. And mm -hmm. mostly it has Dharma talks on it. It will have some guided meditations. So people who want to learn meditation, there'll be some mm. really well-recorded guided meditations on there. Lots of talks and lectures on various That's aspects so of great. Buddhism. Yeah. And also, I do want to interview people. So part of it is I want to interview some of the Buddhist teachers that I like. I haven't got that one sussed out yet. But that's something that I'm interested in trying to give people a, a, a broader appetite for for uh, practice. And mostly it's Dharma based Buddhism, mindfulness, not so much addiction recovery, although that tends to bleed in because that's been part of my experience. And you are. Do you ever work with people in person? I I can and will, but it's so hard. Yeah. And nowadays, it's just so easy for people to just, you know, I used to think that one-on-one -on -one in person is so much better, but now that I've been working on Skype and FaceTime, it's like, you can actually, it's really just as good as having them in really? the room, I think, yeah. And, it, and especially being in LA, it's like you don't have to get in the car and drive. So if people want to come, and I also don't have an office, so that makes it hard. Yeah. So I find that, it, you know, it, Skype, FaceTime, computer, face-to-face -face audio is actually pretty good. Yeah. And I think that you can get a lot accomplished in that in that capacity. Well, this has been fabulous. Um, is there anything you want to add? No, I'm just, you know, I'm moving out to rural Colorado, which I'm very excited about to get out of Los Angeles. And, you know, moving ahead, mostly my interest has been and will be like teaching long-term residential retreats, mm -hmm. um, doing some addiction treatment work and working more on this emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, Atlas of Emotion stuff that I've been interested in with, with, with Eve Ekman and following that and seeing where that goes and just kind of, you know, showing up for things that I'm invited to that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So there, we may or may not see a book. We'll see. We'll, we'll talk about that more. But uh, I'm yeah, I'm uh, I'm curious to see what happens as I have more space for myself and more more space to kind of say yes to things that I've been saying no to because I've been too busy.
Well, and Los Angeles will miss you. Okay. Well, um, so yeah, so that there you have it, Dave Smith here on Recover Girl. If you want to find out more about this podcast, go to recovergirlpod.com. And if you want to find out more about my coaching program for writers, so that you can sell a book like Dave Smith is about to sell his second <laughs> book, go to annadavidcoaching.com. Thanks for listening.